2: The other hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hi, Chris. Welcome
1: to the latest episode of The Other Hand. Uh, I want to start today by just running through a few statistics we've seen published today um, here in Ireland. We've got the December retail sales number, so we we now have a picture of the whole year in terms of retail sales. And retail sales is consumer spending on goods, physical goods. Does not include services. And it's roughly 35, 36% of consumer spending at this stage. But um, in the year to December, the volume of sales was up by 3.9%. And if you exclude buying car sales, which were up 15.6% last year, the volume growth was Uh, 1.8%. What does that mean? Well, it means that there was a little bit of a rebound in consumer spending in December. Uh, but not significant. And I guess the trend throughout 2023 was a gradual slowdown in consumer spending, which is not terribly surprising given the cost of living pressures, given the significant increase in interest rates we've seen. Uh, For 2023 as a whole, the volume of retail sales was up by 4.3%. But if you exclude car sales, the growth was a more sober 1.1%. So in overall terms, I would say two things. One is that the retail sales data are distorted by the very strong new car registrations performance we saw last year. And secondly, um, consumer spending was okay. It was reasonable. It was modest, nothing dramatic. Okay, we Eurostat published data on Uh, Growth in the final quarter of last year, Uh, the euro area was flat, growth of zero. Okay, and if you look over the last four quarters, uh, starting at the first quarter of last year, 0.1, 0.1, minus 0.1, 0.0. Okay, so a very, very flat eurozone economy. And it's estimated that for the full year, the annual growth rate was around 0.5% of particular note, I think, is that the German economy in the final quarter contracted by 0.3%. France was flat. Okay. So, and then some of the, what we would have described as the more peripheral economies like Spain up 0.6%, Italy up 0.2%, Portugal up by 0.8%. So, um, in, in overall terms, Chris, it just describes something we've spoken about many times, about the very, very anemic nature of Eurozone economic growth. And one of the implications of that has to be on the interest rate side. Um, you know, the European Central Bank is going to have to cut interest rates this year. And I think over the next couple of years is going to have to cut rates significantly Um, More aggressively than in the United States, for example, given the different growth um, profiles of the two areas.
2: We got some interesting January updates from the IMF today. They do two big forecasting rounds a year, but in between those rounds, they issue periodic updates. And we've got one of those updates today in which they think that the outlook for developed economies is pretty much unchanged it's three point something growth this year which is steady eddy stuff but what's really interesting is that they think that the super sore away us economy which we talked about a lot last time is going to slow down and they talked a lot about the lagged effects of past interest rate rises still yet to come through so what goes up must come down and I do think that is their very sophisticated dynamic, stochastic general equilibrium model of the u s economy. It amounts to saying what goes up must come down, and the reverse is true for Europe. They've got Europe as you just described. The data is a very flat euro area economy, and they've got that accelerating slightly this year um I laugh frankly when I see forecasts like this because it is. Uh, something that you could put together in about 10 seconds on the back of a fag packet or these days that would probably be too expensive an exercise back of a, a back of an envelope and uh, it really is a very political forecast in which they couldn't say that the European economy was going to have as bad a 24 as it had as in 2023 I suspect various finance ministries and economics ministries around Europe when looking at these draft forecasts would have insisted the IMF put them up so I I don't know, but they look very political forecasts to me, as these things from these international agencies often are. But it was a comment made by Olivier Blanchard on Twitter. He said that what it looks to him like, whereas US interest rates probably will come down this year, they're not going to come down by much because the US economy is in such good shape and inflation has been all but licked in the United States. He said growth is going to remain weak. Um, even on the, U- the IMF's forecast, it's still not going to be great, a better 24 than 23. But that isn't saying much, given what you just told us 2023 looked like, Jim. Um, and so weak growth, low inflation, interest rates have to fall a lot in Europe, which is entirely consistent with what you said there. But um, So I think that's absolutely right. But if that means that we're going to get big interest rate cuts over the next year or two in Europe, but not in the United States... That's quite a divergence because they've been moving up and down together, not one for one, but the the idea that the two areas are going to diverge a lot over the next couple of years I'm not sure is fully baked into how some financial market participants are thinking about the way interest rate policy is going to go. It's great for mortgage holders in the euro area, including Ireland, that uh, interest rates are going to continue falling. It's not great if you're exposed to that weak economic growth, But one implication that I think could be quite big is for the dollar. I don't know what you think, Jim. I know we're straying into forecasting, which we say we will never do. And we're straying into an area that we've both been gainfully employed in the past, which is exchange rate forecasting, which is the ultimate no-no. But it strikes me that if there is this big adjustment in European interest rates, but not US interest rates, the dollar can only go up would that be a fair conclusion or or am i missing something do yeah, you think yeah
1: that would be a logical conclusion chris just to go through before i answer that question about the dollar some of the um interesting aspects of the imf's latest prognosis uh gdp growth this year 3.1% forecast which is the same as last year and that for the world the world sorry that's the world yeah, yeah. and that represents a gradu- uh, sorry a a modest uptick of 0.2% since the last forecast in October. So the IMF is slightly more optimistic about the global economy, states that inflation is declining steadily and that the global economy is beginning the final descent towards a soft landing, which is a term I hate using. It's Uh, dreadful, isn't it? It's absolutely awful. Yeah. The pace of expansion remains slow and there may be turbulence ahead. Okay. Uh, But the positive factors that have caused an upgrade to the growth um, are cited as increased labour force participation, um, mended supply chains and cheaper energy and commodity prices. And it then goes to look at the upside um, risks, you know, disinflation happening faster than expected, meaning that central banks will ease sooner. Um, Fiscal consolidation may be delayed. So in other words, the correction of the public finances that bodies like the IMF push for consistently, uh, maybe push down the road a little bit. And also interestingly saying that AI will boost investment and productivity. And then on the downside, um, it says that commodity and supply chain disruptions are still possible given the global geopolitical backdrop and specifically uh, the military situation in the Middle East, but also Ukraine Uh, They're also warning that core inflation could prove more resilient and that wage inflation, particularly in Europe, could become more of an issue. And also, um, this is something we discussed in the last podcast, that markets may be too optimistic at the moment and that you could get a serious correction at some stage. But looking at the specific question you asked me about the dollar, um, US growth last year, 2.5%, forecast at 2.1% this year and 1.7% last year. That slowdown in the US economy, I mean, you explain it by saying that what goes up must come down and vice versa. Uh, but I, I looked at the commentary underlying that slower growth forecast for the United States and I didn't find anything terribly compelling other than. They're saying that the inflation in the States, unlike Europe, is being driven by too much demand and that policy would have to remain tight to control that demand. Whereas in Europe, it's a supply-side problem, uh, which doesn't necessitate policy to dampen demand. But Eurozone growth this year, sorry, last year, 0.5%, forecast at 0.9% next year, and one point. Oh, boom! And a boom. One point. Well, economic boom in Europe in 2025. But if you put all of that together, it, it would suggest that the dollar should strengthen somewhat against the euro. That is not a forecast, Chris. It's what Indeed. logic It's what logics should suggest might happen. So it won't.
2: So so it won't happen. Exactly. Yes. Okay. So we've we've got the IMF marginally more optimistic. Um, sometimes I think the right way to think about forecasting is just to go whichever way the the IMF is going, but reverse the sign. So um, that that's my natural um, skepticism and cynicism about the way in which forecasting in general is done. The IMF shouldn't take too much stick. They're they're probably as good, if not better, than lots of other forecasters. But uh, take these numbers with a with a pinch of salt. Uh, Moving on, Jim, to the actual data, we've got a lot out already, as you said, for Ireland and and for Europe. We've also had uh, what's called the JOLT survey in in the States, which is job openings. And guess what? Yet again, the labour market is... Seemed to be more vibrant and tighter and generally in much better shape than economists thought it was going to be. It really is an extraordinary story about how vibrant the US labor market actually is. Job openings increased, which wasn't expected at a rate that wasn't expected. That's a prelude to something we're going to be talking about at the end of the week. Um, It's a big week for all sorts of reasons, not least the critical non farm payroll, the labor market report is out on Friday. And we'll get uh, either confirmation of a vibrant US uh, labor market or, as some people seem to think, forlornly, they they, they keep saying it, that the, one day the US labor market will slow down. There's been no sign of that at all. But it's also a very big week in markets, Jim, uh, for the very simple reason that the big companies, the Microsoft Alphabets or Google, Meta, and a number of other key companies are going to report, some today, some on Thursday. And so we're going to get, a, I, I suspect, quite a big equity market move this week, if any, or, or of, all of those results surprise. So do keep an eye out for those, for those results. We will be talking about them on Friday. Uh, I wanted to move on from all of that and throw something at you that um, Shane O'Mara, somebody that we talk, talk to on this podcast, good friend of the podcast, put a comment up on our Substack site uh, a couple of days ago in light of the latest opinion polls in Ireland. And he said that his long-standing forecast, or expectation, shall we say, of a coalition government resulting from the next Irish general election was reinforced by the latest weekend opinion polls, showing a big slippage in the support for Sinn Féin. And overall, the the message of the poll was that there isn't going to be one clear winner of the next general election and that the only government that could come out of that opinion poll if it was replicated would be a coalition government was that your takeaway Jim oh yeah I mean Chris
1: a take a coalition government was inevitable Uh, it was never likely that Sinn Féin would form a government on its own because it just wouldn't get enough seats so some people
2: some people were saying that might happen weren't they
1: uh, not too many, I would have thought. I'm not, OK. Yeah, I'm, I'm not certain, but I, I guess it's the nature of the coalition, because um, if Sinn Féin performed very strongly, uh, they wouldn't need too many parties to come in with him. OK, so it would be a coalition government very definitely uh, controlled by Sinn Féin. But the other option, this is the option that does become a little bit more likely if the opinion poll at the weekend were to be replicated in an election over the next fifteen months, um, would be pretty much a continuation of what we have at the moment, Fina Gale, Fina Fall, and probably the Greens. You know, so you could well get the same government next time out. Um I you know, I would I would hasten to add that jumping to too many conclusions based on one opinion poll is always dangerous. But, and, and you know, the, the 4% decline, or the, the decline from down to 25%, from 29% for Sinn Féin could be an outlier. I'd like to see that uh, replicated over two or three opinion polls before I jump to any definitive conclusions. But um, if I were the leader of Sinn Féin, I certainly would be concerned because um, in the first couple of years of the government being formed in summer of 2020, Sinn Féin performed very strongly in the polls. But over the last 12, 18, 24 months, uh, Sinn Féin has certainly plateaued and has failed to build on the strong momentum that it had after the last
2: election so, if anything, it's come down, isn't it? Because it had, my memory of the yeah, my it, memory of these polls is that they did peak in the mid thirties.
1: They did around 36 percent is um, where I would see is. But you know, there are different polling companies, and the polling sure. the polling company that did this poll that we we're talking about always tends to underestimate Sinn Fein's um, support. So, uh, but but. Having said all of that, Chris, it is really interesting. And um, I know there's a long way to go. There's a lot of water to flow under the bridge before the election. But um, certainly the leadership of Sinn Féin would be concerned about um, the, the, the way the opinion polls are going. And of course, one of the issues for the whole electorate at the moment and every party is the attitude towards immigration and um, I think Sinn Fein finds itself in a pretty unenviable situation here, because on the one hand, um, there there is, I think, a natural inclination within Sinn Fein to be anti-immigration, uh, but on the other hand, there is the political reality of having such a stance at the moment. It's a, it's a really really difficult one for Sinn Fein, and I think it is certainly having some impact on the polls we're
2: seeing. Do you think they'll get any um, bounce in support from the fact that a deal has been done in Northern Ireland and that that incredibly well-run economy will now have a government? uh, No, I I mean, I I don't see Sinn Féin down here
1: getting any uh, bounce. And and I think what will be really interesting over the coming months in terms of analysing Sinn Féin and its economic policies will be to analyse what it has delivered in Northern Ireland OK. And a lot of the, how long will, how long will that take us, Jim? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> a, a, a lot of the um, let's be objective about this, Chris. A, 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 lot, a lot of the Sinn Féin um, rhetoric down here is about housing, is about health. Uh, but yet, if you look at the performance up north, it's not exactly um, awe-inspiring. for me, that wasn't an option. I never really was
2: a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
2: The NHS, which is UK wide, is, is on its back. Um, at, at, and at best, it's on its knees. And the worst performing part of the NHS is by far and away in Northern Ireland. If you look at if you look at the data, so the data certainly support one aspect of the way in which that region is of the UK is is being run. Uh, but we should mark the fact that uh, as we speak, there isn't any official confirmation that the administration is going to be reformed. But there is. Fevered speculation in Westminster and Belfast and indeed Dublin that the DUP have finally been won round by a deal offered to them by Rishi Sunak, the details of which will not be published fully until tomorrow, apparently. Uh, But, of course, a lot of the aspects of that deal have been leaked. And it's really curious because it looks to me like that if what, for example, Geoffrey Donaldson, the leader of the DUP, has been saying if sunak has managed to eliminate all checks um you might remember that under the windsor agreement the checks were minimized but not done away with altogether uh that if under this agreement all checks have been eliminated completely and that brussels is okay with that uh, the only logical way and they may have found a magical way of course magical thinking has always been a big part of the irish sea border Uh, and all things Brexit-related. But if you think about this logically, the only way there can be no checks on goods moving from GB to Northern Ireland is if GB is aligned fully with EU standards. And that's something that Theresa May offered and was roundly rejected by all of her party and the DUP and just about everybody else on the right-wing Brexiteering side of the fence. It will remain to be seen just how the right wing of his party will take that if that conclusion is right. But what that does is that it moves Britain, guess what, closer to the EU and sets up nicely Keir Starmer for when he comes in to move even closer than that via a formal what's called an SPS, um, Sanitary and Phytosanitary Standard Agreement. A lot of the detail and acronyms and mumbo jumbo around this are mind numbing. But it it looks as if Sunak might have blinked. The other aspect to this, of course, as always, when it comes to Northern Ireland, is money. And there is muttering about a three and a half billion deal, some of which was owed on the basis of public sector pay. And one of the reasons we had big strikes in Northern Ireland a couple of weeks ago in, in the public sector is that they've not been getting their pay rises that they would normally have been getting. Uh, in the normal course of business, business as usual. So that that's not in a sense extra money. It's just money that needed the uh, um, the government to be in existence for it to be paid. But you know what, Jim? One of the th- if there is extra money, as there often is in these circumstances, the last time the DUP managed to get a bung of a billion or two was during the great Brexit debates. Um, th- they had to be bribed with with that kind of money. As a GB taxpayer. If there is extra money for these people, I must say that I resent that. And I just wanted to leave that out there.
1: Yeah, as as, as usual, Northern Ireland politics does uh, confuse. It balls the pants
2: off you, Jim. Come on, yeah. admit it.
1: Yeah, that's that's probably it, actually. But uh, following our podcast last week when Martin Wolf's article in the Financial Times about Brexit, I went out and bought the book What Went Wrong With Brexit by Peter Foster, Uh, got it in Dungarvan yesterday and uh, just started to read it so looking forward to seeing what he has to say but the title of the book What Went Wrong With Brexit I think says it all and today we got data from the British Insolvency Service okay Um, England and Wales had the highest number of company insolvencies since 1993 last year okay what I would say, okay, 25,158 companies declared insolvent. That's up 13.7% on the previous year. And the factors that are given to explain this is interest rates, patchy demand, largely as consumers react to higher inflation, high energy bills and staff costs. Okay. The one thing I would say is that The statistic I've thrown out there is the absolute number. But the insolvency service states that the rate of businesses going bust was not as severe as 2008, 2009, when you adjust for the rise in the total number of companies. So to put that in perspective, in 2023, 53.7 companies were insolvent out of every 10,000 companies trading. Okay, a rate of 53.7. Okay, Um, during 2008, 2009 economic crisis, there was 94.8 companies insolvent for every 10,000. So you, you can adjust the numbers to not give quite as bad a picture. But 2023 was a bad year for company insolvencies. So there we have just another indication. And I know there are other factors at play, but we have another indication here of just how brilliant Brexit is turning out for the UK economy. And in the context of what's going on in Northern Ireland at the moment, really, really
2: does cause you to question the sanity of the UK political system. Going back to the IMF update, they warned the Chancellor Chancellor Hunt not to cut taxes in the upcoming budget. That really is Canute-like wailing at the tide, because that's exactly what he's going to do. Because what the UK economy absolutely screams out needing is more investment spending. It doesn't need lower taxes right now. Uh, Lower taxes are always something that uh, we all like, but there's a time and place for them. And this is neither the time nor the place. But as part of the whole insanity of the British political situation, we're going to get it. Um, You have mentioned Martin Wolf there, Jim, and he's got another article out today, this one about Ukraine. And he is brilliant, as always. This this guy is just getting better and better as he gets older. Um, and the title of the article says it all. I mean, this one is not about Brexit or indeed the UK. It's about Ukraine. And it begins, Ukraine fatigue, in inverted commas, is unpardonable. And he talks about Zelensky uh, asking or stating, if anybody thinks this is only about us, that this is only about Ukraine, they are fundamentally mistaken. In Davos, something that we've talked about last week, uh, Wolf was asked by Ukraine's foreign minister, does the West still believe in itself? I think the answer to that is self-evident. We do not. We do not have values that we are willing to defend. And Martin isn't uh, rude enough uh, or strident enough as, as in, our, in the way that I am. Um, but I think he agrees with my, my answer. And he says that both the assertion that this isn't just about Ukraine, it's about all of us, and and the question, does the West believe in itself, were to the point, and I'll quote what he says here, what is happening in and to Ukraine challenges Western values and Western interests. It challenges our values because Ukraine has proved with its resources, its blood, and its will, the desire to be a free, independent, and democratic country. It challenges our interests because it could, if independent, be a bulwark against Russia. Since Putin's Russia is the most dangerous, revanchist power on the continent since Hitler's Germany, Europe seems sure to need it. And he goes on about the way in which we are financing, or in many cases not financing, Ukraine. He makes an economist point that it's a very cheap way of standing up to Russia because we're not actually putting any of our own troops in the firing line. Um, and it's just a question of finding relatively small amounts of money. And he, it, it it goes on. Jim, I've got a statistic for you, which I think tells you um, a lot of what we need to know. Um, before the war, before the Ukraine war started, Russia was producing around 200 battle tanks a year off its production lines. In the two years subsequent to that, that rate of battle tank production has risen from 200 a year to 2600 a year not by coincidence it reckons that ukraine has managed we reckon that ukraine has managed to destroy in the last year about two and a half thousand tanks so they're just building what they're replacing and the attrition rate is very high those poor buggers in the in the tanks um uh, of course only to be pitied really when you see all those pictures available on various channels of uh missiles dropped by drones into open hatches of tanks and the resulting explosions, they are quite horrific. But the Russian economy has been turned into a war economy. And Ukraine is now starting to lose that war for the simple reason is that they're running out of ammunition. They are not being given two and a half thousand battle tanks a year. And to give you an idea of the way in which the West is not ready to stand up to Russia and how Ukraine is doing it for us on the cheap, as it were, is remember I said that uh, Russia is producing uh, 2,600 tanks a year. Just before the war started, the Institute for the Study of War, who knows about these sorts of things, reckoned that of varying vintages, so varying quality, Russia had about 17,500 tanks in storage, ready to go. Do you know how many the UK has got? And I say got in a very loose sense, because a lot of this these tanks, this number that I'm gonna quote to you now, Jim, they're not they're not ready to go because they're not serviceable. They, they don't actually work. But do you know how many tanks that the UK says it's got? Battle yeah. tanks? Twenty. Two hundred.
1: Oh two
2: hundred, okay. And I and a lot of those aren't aren't serviceable at the moment. Wow. So the the point of Wolf's article is that we're letting via fatigue, via decadence, via the fact that we no longer believe in ourselves we're setting Ukraine up to to lose. And the, the, the two main obvious ways that that is happening are the ways in which there are clear elements of the Republican Party in Washington that wants Ukraine to lose. Let's be absolutely clear about this. This is shocking in the extreme. They want Putin to win. And there are a number of reasons for this. Donald Trump, I suspect, couldn't care less who wins in Ukraine. But what he wants is the chaos in order to be able to describe himself as the ultimate peacemaker. And here in Europe, we've got Viktor Orban's Hungary um, yet again threatening the 50 billion that uh, Europe has earmarked for Ukraine. Remember, this is just money. It's not arms because Europe hasn't got the arms because we don't produce them ready to go. NATO announced a big... uh, arms production deal for Ukraine uh, in the last couple of weeks, hundreds of thousands of much needed artillery shells that at the earliest will be ready in 2025, but probably not until 2026. Uh, Extraordinary stuff. So get ready for Ukraine to lose. Um, Personally, going back to the Hungary thing, Jim, I don't know what you think, but I think that we should have kicked Hungary out of the EU a long time ago, not just argued with them.
1: Of course we should, absolutely. Uh, I Can I read a quote from that Martin Wolf article, which I think s- sums up the challenge very well? Uh, it's quite long, so but bear with me. In brief, we are watching what, what has come to be called Ukraine fatigue. Yet the arguments for stopping Russia from destroying Ukraine have in no way diminished. On the contrary, the behaviour and rhetoric of the Russian government have, if anything, got worse. The extension of totalitarian control of the occupied regions of Ukraine is horrifying. This is an attempt to eliminate the aspirations and identity of a people. Former Russian President Dmitry Medvedev threatens external eternal war until Russia gets Ukraine. And what might Russia want next? The Baltics, Eastern Europe. And what might China want if it sees such a collapse in Western will? Um, I think that really sums up very well just how high the stakes are here. Um, And and that's why the ascendancy of Trump is so deeply concerning, plus the
2: general fatigue, which Mark Mooliff talks about in much of the rest of the world. We talked about this offline earlier, Jim, and I just wanted to record uh, that bit of our Conversations. We have lots of conversations, not just the ones that we put up on the podcast, in which I was talking about the number of people. We had a lot of visitors here over the weekend, and every single one of them asked me about my concerns, fears, expectations for war that would involve us. And if you look at the various journalists, analysts, strategists out there who are talking about sleepwalking into war, Comparing us with the summer of 1914 and the way the world slipped into war, there's an awful lot of it about. A Bloomberg journalist, John Authors Today, wrote his piece exactly about this and noted that the references to World War III were at a high on in, ver- in the various ways that you can count it in news analysis, news reports, news headlines. And that the markets, he echoed our remarks that we made last week, which is that it's curious, given that everybody is talking about the possibility, awful though it seems, of a war involving us. Um, the markets are saying no, they're not worried about it. And, and that's a curiosity which John authors discussed. But one of the things that you and I, when we were discussing all of this, you were saying that this... Feeling on the street, if you like, this responding to all of these different articles, because every day there's something somewhere in the press or on the TV or on the Internet or all of the above saying we're slip sliding into war. Uh, you said to me that you don't think that that kind of conversation on the street is being had in Ireland. That, is that right? Did That's correct,
1: right, yeah. Maybe I don't move in the right circles, but uh, I hear a lot less discussion. I mean, I, I, I've i spoken at events. I mentioned the Leinster Certified Public Countants last Thursday, where uh, there was a lot of comment from the floor, I guess, about just how scary the global geopolitical environment is at the moment. But, Apart from that, I'm not hearing a lot about it. Is it because we're a neutral country and um, we'd be less likely to get dragged in, or at least that's the view in the event of outright war, where the UK obviously would be at the cutting edge I'm not, I'm not sure but certainly yeah
2: I, I don't know either and I think you must be right it must be something to do with Ireland's neutrality and that historically you don't get involved in in, in these kinds of conflicts or any kind of conflict actually other than the one that you you have yourself over the last 800 years but the the, <laughs> the the big the big European wars you tend not to get involved in unless I mean a good number of your citizens volunteered during both World War One and World War Two, of course um uh, but as a, as a country, your neutrality is, is now well established, of course, and I think that must provide you with some comfort. But to give you an idea, this is, these are not um, military types or political types or deep thinkers of, of any particular kind. These are ordinary people coming to me. I got an email from a mate who lives near near London, a drinking buddy, um, asking me that uh, if it all kicks off, can he come and live with me? Because I, I have a house not near London at the moment. I said to him, yeah, sure, we, we have a spare room. And he said well that'll be nine of us and the dog <laughs> so we so we've we've agreed that the dog can come but unfortunately all all of all of his extended family have to stay where they are in the event that putin does make a play for for london i mean but that is that these are real conversations that that i'm having with people that the people are are extremely nervous and that phrase sleepwalking to war i think needs to be retired for that very reason is that everybody's talking we we may or may not and let's pray that we are not sliding to war, but we're certainly not sleepwalking because we're talking about it all the time over here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a pretty depressing vista. And I think Chris will wrap it on that before we get dragged into the depths of despair and depression. We'll try
2: and be more cheerful next time. Yeah, we will indeed have a good one. And the the, the cheerful note is is look at those financial markets. They're well behaved. They're saying that all of this pessimism, all of this depressing talk is uh, something that you don't need to pay attention to. The world is in good shape. Financial markets have got it wrong before, but let's hope they're getting it right now. So cheers, Jim. See you, Chris.
1: That's the sound of another sale on Shopify, in store. Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person. From payments to inventory, Shopify unites your sales
2: into one commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash Retail23. Shopify.com slash
1: Retail23.